Have you ever walked past the dumpster and been like, yo, I wonder what's in that dumpster? I can put on these glasses. Let's start eating that trash can. In a quiet suburb, three girls were imprisoned, tortured, tortured. Now, some neighbors say they are shocked by what happens. Others say that they called police in recent years after hearing yelling in the house, and in one case, seeing a naked woman in the backyard. Harry screaming. I meet my McDonald's. Come outside. Amanda Berry. And Michelle Knight. Trying to get out of the house. You're listening to the True Crime Dumpster podcast with hosts Amy and Kevin. And we are coming back at you this week with our finale, luckily, of Ariel Castro, the biggest piece of shit on earth, and the amazing survivors, Michelle Knight, Amanda Berry, and Gina De Jesus. All right. How are you doing this week, Kevin? Well, so far, so good. I'm a little aggro. Yeah, I... You thought it was because we haven't eaten sugar for like the last... Well, I've had probably more sugar than you. I'm bad. But we're, yeah, we're, we're, we're like experimenting hard. with keto. It's hard. It like, when you can't have it, you want it. That's probably how Ariel Castro felt. <laughs> wow. That was an amazing segue. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I mean, it's true. He like has a fucking problem and we have a fucking problem with sugar. This country has a problem with sugar. I think that is apples and oranges. <laughs> Anyways, that was my segue into Ariel Castro. Well, how are you? I hate Ariel Castro. I'm yeah. not preoccupied. I'm occupied only by finishing this horrendous pile of garbage so we can put him to rest and get into the next pile of garbage. Well, we have a couple awesome things coming up. So, like that's why I'm excited cuz I I have reread both of the memoirs double over the last like 2 weeks. And so, I mean, both of them are like 300-page memoirs. So, I've basically read 600 pages over again over the last, you know, couple weeks or so. It, because it's so hard. I don't want to cut out anything. But at the same time, I'm not going to recite 600 pages of their books right here because y'all can just listen to them. They're amazing. Uh, listen or read them. Um, I found actually both online for free. I don't know if that's messed up or not. I also supported them by buying them on Audible. And I'm, I, I want physical copies of the books as well. So I will definitely support them in many ways. But man, electronic PDFs of books is awesome for information and finding like keywords and stuff. So I've been using those like crazy. I will post those on our website under our resources. So if you'd like to check those out, you can also literally check them out of the library for free. So I'm just going to throw that out there. Yeah. If always... free is too expensive, then GTFO. <laughs> 
So last week we ended up with Gina's abduction, which she ended with the thought, why is Arlene's dad doing this to me? I incorrectly stated that he actually raped her the first time. He actually just masturbated in front of her like he did with Amanda. And then I'll get to more later. It does not get better. Just Thanks so you for know. clearing that up. Well, because it's a whole section of her story in her memoir, Hope, about the fact that he waits for her. And how noble. I, I, well, did he wear all white? Ugh. Like a bed of roses? Shut, I can't. No, I can't even joke about it. It's gross. Yeah. Sorry. All right. That's okay. <laughs> um, it's the keto. I know. It's I'm the, aggro. Yeah. You need, I need, you need to drink some chocolate milk or something. I don't know. Just eat chocolate up. milk. <laughs> I'm 10. All right. So that's where we left off at. I'm going to do a, big chunks of the books at in this portion just because I think that they just did such an amazing job, right? I can't I can't paraphrase or summarize some of the things that they talk about. So I will have big chunks from the text here. The first one being Gina's account. So she writes, I was walking home from seventh grade in April 20, 2004 uh, when he tricked me into his car. I turned 15, locked inside of Seymour Avenue, and then 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, and 23. Yeah, that's when you hear it like that. I know. And that's why I'm like, there's no way I'm going to like sum that up. It's like, oh, she was prisoner for nine years. And it's like, no, every single year felt like an eternity, I'm sure. And from 14 to 23, can you think about how much life you lived when the time you were 14 to 23? Yeah, So much happens during that time. He made me want to kill myself, and I felt so sad and alone that for months at a time, I barely got out of bed. I wonder if he was planning this. I've seen him so many times in my neighborhood in the past year. He'd be sitting in his school bus parked on Dearborn Avenue right around the corner from my house, and he would wave at me. Other times he would drive by me slowly, smiling and waving. I always waved back. I figured my neighborhood must have been on his bus route. Now I bet he was stalking me. When news of Gina's abduction reached Brian Hefferman late Saturday night, there is this collective knot in the guts of everyone in Cleveland. Oh my God, it happened again. Detectives and the public automatically tied Gina's abduction to Amanda's because they're literally like on the same exact street, Lorraine. All three were, right? I No, because um, Michelle, she was abducted at the family dollar store. So oh. it's, it, I mean, it may have been on Lorraine Avenue, but it's a little different. She wasn't just like plucked right off the street, you know? I mean, all of them went into his Car. vehicle like yeah. somewhat willingly because, again, he picked girls that kind of, he kind of knew. Right. And for Gina, she, she really knew him. That was her, like one of her best friend's dads. One of the people working Amanda's um, and soon Gina's case was Phil Torsney, an FBI agent for more than 20 years. He specialized in finding people, and in 2011, he would make news around the world for his role in locating and arresting uh, James Whitey Bulger, the infamous Boston mobster who had been a fugitive for 16 years. While seeing herself on the news with her pleading parents, Gina asks Ariel, were you following me all those times? Yeah, I was, he said. You turned me on. I liked your cleavage. I liked it when you wore a black t-shirt and a jean skirt. That was my favorite. She wondered 
if at the Christmas concert, when he was talking to her parents, he was already planning on kidnapping her. Gina constantly asks Ariel if she can write to her family and let them know she's okay. He finally lets her, but warns her not to say where she is. She writes, and I, one of the reasons I wanted to include her words here is just, I mean, she's fucking 14. She's so yeah. innocent. And, you know, similar to the to Amanda, not similar to both of the girls, because Michelle desperately wants everyone to know she's okay because she wants her kid back, you know? All of them just are like, I just want my family to know that I'm alive and okay. And that maybe not okay, but alive. Dear everybody, how are you? I am okay. I love you. Mom and dad, I love you. Don't give up hope. I am not dead. I want to come home now. People from my school who like me and people who don't like me were on TV participating in my vigil. I want to say thank you to them. Tell Chrissy not to go skating without me. When I go home, I want my family and friends over and we can cry together and have fun. She tells her brother Ricky that he is funny sometimes and that she misses him. And she also says uh, to her sister Myra that she loves her. And then she writes, P.S. I want mom to know I cut my hair. Gina cuts her hair hoping that Ariel hates it and this will make him like her less. He says he will send the letter, but when he catches her trying to pick the lock with a pencil, he throws it at her and refuses to send it because he can't trust her. So he never sends the letter. Mm. He eventually lets her move upstairs out of the basement. Gina has figured out that Ariel has Amanda Berry, the girl who has been connected to her abduction. She figures this out when she sees a picture of her taped up on a mirror in his house. He claims that the picture is his ex-girlfriend, but she knows better. When she gets upstairs, she sees two other blonde women in two of the bedrooms, and they're both watching TV. She doesn't meet them at this point, though. Over the court, yeah. Were they in the same room? No. Because like at the, he's keeping them all so wildly isolated from one another because I, he has this fear that they're going to conspire, you know? There's one time where she sees Amanda in the kitchen and they whisper their names to each other and Ariel quickly shuts them down. Behind their backs, he spreads lies about shit talking, saying that Amanda has told on Gina, saying that Gina's too loud. And Gina gets upset and kind of resents Amanda. Um, so again, clearly he is trying yeah. to keep them apart from each other and so that they don't conspire against him. So at this point, I'm literally going to cover like eight and a half years. And that is very, very hard to do. So what I did is I went through both books again and kind of cherry picked some of my favorite stories or significant moments in the home during their abduction. And there's just no way that I can do it justice because literally I'm picking from 600 pages of survivor's memoirs. Okay. So there's just a couple of things. One is he puts mirrors up around the house strategically placed so that he can see them at all times, which is super creepy. And that's something that Amanda talks about that it bothers her a lot. The way he's got like one mirror downstairs is so that he can see upstairs. So he can just look in the mirror while he's watching TV to see if anybody is outside of their room and like scream at them if they are. Most of the time they're chained up, so it doesn't really matter. It's not like they're going to be doing anything, but I think he just wants to know in case they're trying to escape. And then he also has mirrors placed in the hallway so that if he's looking into one person's room on one side of the hallway, he can look into the mirror without turning around to see if anybody else is trying to escape or anything. Because, again, like he's crazy paranoid 
And, um, and he's too lazy to turn around. And, and he's too lazy. But there's that idea of just like he doesn't trust them. And so the second that his back is turned, he thinks that they're going to try to sabotage him or oh, something. That's weird. I wonder why he doesn't trust them. Yeah. So that's like just something that Amanda pointed out that I felt like it was really creepy. Just all these mirrors everywhere. So he could just watch them all the time, you know. For Amanda's 18th birthday, she refuses a cake from Ariel Castro, but wishes for these things instead. And I, I really kind of appreciated the list. She wishes that she had never gotten into his van. She wishes that she could take back every mean thing she ever said to her mom. She wishes she could have fun and save up to go to college. She wishes for her own room back and clean pressed clothes to wash her hair, cut it, take a shower twice a day like she used to. She wants to talk on the phone, walk outside, go shopping, drink a Dr. Pepper. And she doesn't want, oh, this is this part, and she doesn't want to need counseling for the rest of her life or always be scared of everyone she ever meets ever again. She wishes for this to all be over. That was her 18th birthday wish. After a month and five days, Ariel hasn't raped. Oh, yeah. So this is the part where I brought up the Gina thing. After a month and five days, Ariel actually hasn't raped Gina yet. I hate that I'm surprised by this fact. Maybe his hesitation is due to the fact that she's only 14 and a virgin. He actually asks her if she's a virgin. And of course, she says she is. And then he says he's going to get like, quote, 100 points for taking that from her. Yeah. She meant, I know. She mentions her father, Felix, hoping this helps to humanize her a bit since Felix is his friend. Yeah, they're friends. Yeah. Soon after, he violently rapes her and she begs him not to. Afterward, he forces her to celebrate with him and gives her a glass of wine, which she hates because she's fucking 14, you know? And he reminds her that you never forget your first. Fucking A, dude. Barf. What a fuck. He makes her celebrate it. That's the so fucking worst. Up. I know. And she's this tiny little 14 year old girl, you know? And then when she is obviously despondent and sad about being raped and being a prisoner in his home, he offers to uh, kidnap her friend Christy for her or Chrissy. He's like, well, I could I could kidnap your friend Chrissy for you if you're so lonely. And she's like, please, 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 please don't. That's it's so psychologically fucking fuckery, you know? Okay, so my f Gina, I, one of the reasons I really love Gina and I use her very much, I know I didn't I, I didn't talk shit, but Elizabeth Smart, I one thing that I didn't like about her memoir is I felt like she wasn't being totally honest. And when I say honest, I mean like that human kind of honest, like that 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 real deep human like I hate this person because clearly you have to fucking hate your abductor to some extent. You know what I mean? And I feel like Elizabeth Smart throughout is constantly like praying for him and like, you know, thanking God that she's still alive and all this stuff. And I totally get that. She's a very spiritual Mormon person. But I wanted her to hate her abductor real bad. And she never I feel like she never comes out and says, like, fuck this guy, because I think that her faith holds her back from saying the things that she wants to say about that human kind of instinct, you know? Right. And so one of the reasons I bring that up is that Gina is the antithesis of Elizabeth Smart, you know? She is so not afraid to talk shit to Ariel Castro. And she's so not afraid to say how much she hates his guts and she wants him dead. It was, like, very cathartic listening to parts of Gina's memoir 
because, like I said, it was just the complete antithesis of Elizabeth Smart. So this is my favorite Gina story. Let's play a game, he says. He opens the gun to show us that it is loaded with one bullet. He takes it out, puts it back, and spins the chamber around. Michelle is scared and moves as far away from us as she can. But I just keep staring at the gun. When he brought me here, he told me he had a revolver and would kill me if I tried to escape. He brought it from the kitchen, so it must have been hidden on top of the refrigerator or in one of the high cupboards. He's always telling us we are short and can't reach anything. I'm the tallest, and I'm not quite five foot two. He explains the game. If I'm willing to take the risk, he will put the gun to my head and pull the trigger. If I live, he'll give me a chance to put the gun to his head. Come on, he says. You want to play? Okay, I tell him. I'll play with you. He seems surprised. Michelle looks shocked and thinks it's a bad idea. What do I have to lose, I say. I'll play. You understand that I'm going to pull the trigger, right? He asks. I'm getting more nervous as I have time to think about it, but I can't stand what's happening in this house anymore. So I say a prayer to God and then to my parents to forgive me. I'm ready, I tell him. He puts the gun to my temple and pulls the trigger. I hear a click and then I open my eyes. My heart is beating fast. I don't know what I feel, but he seems excited. Let's keep playing, he says. Will you pull the trigger on me? If you do, it means you hate me. And if you can't, it means you don't hate me. Is he serious? Doesn't he know how much I hate him? Think about it, he says. He gets on his knees and he needs a minute to pray. He bows his head and closes his eyes. Then he looks up and tells me again, if you pull the trigger, it means you hate me. See, he's trying to like fuck with her and she's like not having it. He's been drinking beer and maybe he's, he's had more than I realize because it should be obvious to him by now that I'd blow his head off. (laughs) that I'd love to blow his head off. He hands me the gun and I don't waste a second. I put it right to his head and pull the trigger. Click. That's where she fucked up because she should have kept pulling the trigger. I know, I know. But this was the part that was so refreshing in a sense that like this is exactly the opposite of how Elizabeth Smart was like recounting her tale. Right. Is that like the opportunity she had to like hurt her kidnapper, she doesn't take. Because she doesn't want, like, God to be, like, mad at her kind of a thing. But Gina's like, yeah, fuck that. I'm going to kill this motherfucker, yeah, you know? Yeah, I, I, I go with that yeah. that way of thinking as well. Yeah, but just that click, oh, you know? Oh, totally, yeah. I was hoping he'd be dead on the floor and I would run out of the house and we'd all be free. Now I'm afraid that I might be in big trouble. But he stands up and doesn't say a word. He doesn't seem mad. It's like he doesn't care at all. Just that whole thing, I just like how differently things would have gone if she would have she would have been able to just shoot him in the head, you know? Yeah, it, she should have just. Kept I know, I know, I know. But what's crazy too is like at this point she's like fifteen years old, and so it's like there's still that childishness to her where she probably doesn't want to fucking take a human life, you know, to some extent. It sounds like she was. <laughs> I know, I know, it. I know. It does, and um, it's because I think after this experience, he does not trust Gina anymore. Because he's like, if given the chance, this girl will blow my fucking head off. You know. That's kind of what happens when you like. Yeah. Rape someone when they're yeah. a virgin well, and make them celebrate it in. Yeah, and Michelle and Amanda blah, blah, blah. like have these. I think that Michelle would have taken a chance. Like, eh, the thing is, they they both are like, yeah, I'm not going to do that because they don't want to die. You know, even though their lives are shit, they're like, yeah, I'm not playing that game. 
you know? But he Gina does. He doesn't really beat Gina either, does he? No, he does. He's She probably, went, whenever he gets a new girl, that's his new favorite plaything for a while. And so after she, you know, has sex for the first time, well, after she is raped for the first time, but after, you know, her first sexual encounter ever, he continues to rape her like four to five times a day, similar to like how he did with Amanda. And unfortunately, it's again, like a psychological fuckery thing where she's getting the brunt of the abuse, you know, for a while, which means that Amanda and Michelle get like a break. And so it's like this fucked up thing that he does to them where it's like, I feel terrible that he's abducted this new girl, but at the same time, it means I get raped less. Right. And so they kind of say, and again, like they don't say this like explicitly, but they don't go out of their way to like help each other because they're trying to help themselves to some extent. However, Gina is the one who does go out of her way to help both of them a lot throughout, which is why both of them very much hail her as like their, um, you know, savior to some extent. And we'll talk about that. After four months, Ariel has Gina and Michelle share a room. Again, he's trying to fuck with them. They both love the company, but he rates he rapes each one of them in front of each other with chains still attached, and it really fucks with them. Amanda is, okay, and he does this to isolate Amanda, you know? Amanda is bothered by the laughing, talking, and singing that she can hear through the walls. In a weird way, it brings its... It seems to bring her closer to Ariel so that she has someone too. One time they watched The Passion of Christ together and she recounts how strange <laughs> I know. Oh my God. And she's just like, it's so weird that I'm watching this story about Jesus Christ, our savior, and I'm sitting next to like the fucking devil, the fuck, you know? Yeah, totally. Amanda writes, she thinks I don't notice that he treats Gina and Michelle better. And again, like at this time in... Michelle's memoir she's writing about how much better he treats Amanda you know so yeah, it's like it's and and that's too. one of the reasons I don't think that they could write their memoirs together is that their perceptions of how Ariel was with them totally skewed the way they felt about each other and and they will swear up and down like no she got the better treatment no she got the better treatment you know yeah I see him, so Amanda continues to write, I see him going into their room, and I'll bet he's bringing them things he's not giving to me. He treats them like friends, but he uses me for sex. It is most certain that the other girls think the same of Amanda. Psychological torture, like I was saying. Amanda is so distraught about feeling so isolated and alone and knowing that they're having all this fun, quote-unquote, next door, you know? She asks for a hug from Ariel. Because she's so lonely, you know? And so he gives her a hug and he says, I have feelings for you. And then she's so grossed out by this, by her, by herself. She's so grossed out by herself. And she wonders, is this what, is this what prison does to people? In November of 2004, Amanda's mother uh, went on to the Montel Williams show with a psychic. And the psychic tells her mother that she is in heaven. That pisses Amanda off. Luana, her mother, believes it to some extent. Amanda and Gina spend time together and become close. Amanda is not the stuck-up person that Gina thought that she was. They make fun of Ariel's cheapness and racism. Uh, they both love Will Smith, and they're kind of like talking about that. 
Oh yeah, there's a no black TV. Or yeah, music and, and they're like, the and so they're just kind of like, re, like you know, regaling over their mutual hatred of Ariel. He moves them around from time to time to allow his family to come over for visits. That's the thing that's so fucked. I think it's his one of his grandkids, or yeah, one of his grandkids. He actually like lets a grandkid meet Amanda. Really? Yeah, the grandkid's like three, and so he's like, yeah, he's not gonna remember this. So, like, th- there was some weirdness for sure. Um, but when his family would come over, he would either put them down in the cellar or he would put them in the van in the garage or with a tarp over it in the backyard. And um, he leaves them out in the van for a really long time. And, like, the daughter... Uh, see, this is why that's hard with the... Because they call the people different names and don't really totally explain so the one that is gina's like best friend like arlene he calls her rosie because that's her middle name she comes over to spend the night and hang out with him when he locks them in the garage inside of the van and so what's crazy i mean it's not crazy because it's fucking ariel castro and everything he does is fucked up but she spends the night and in the morning he like rips amanda out of the van rapes her in the garage Put throws her back into the van and then goes and makes his daughter breakfast. <laughs> like, what the fuck? It's so insane. How I know. It's like so, like it's like so car- compartmentalized. Yeah, like he can just do that. Yeah. The reason that they don't try to escape too, because I, you know, they're, one they're chained, and two they worry that he'll shoot them because he says, "I'll shoot you if you try to leave." And they believe him. There's also a time where she, one of the times they get locked in the van, Amanda like thinks or talks out loud or kind of thinks out loud about trying to take the van because she thinks like she can hotwire it or something. And then Ariel Castro, like he fucks with Amanda being like, I know that you tried to, I know that you thought about trying to hotwire the car when you guys were out in the garage and she's like, I didn't say that. And he's all like, Gina told me. And she's like, what? Gina fucking told you that. Why would she tell you that? Like, man, I can't trust her. Like, and it's like, he just guessed that, you know what I mean? Like he like put it out there to see how she would react. And when she reacted the way she did, he was like, Oh yeah, Gina, Gina told me because he's like, you guys are getting too close. You know, in March of 2006, Amanda's mother dies of a heart attack, which is just so incredibly sad because, like, right before she dies, she be- like a psychic tells her that her daughter's dead. Yeah. And yeah. she never finds out the truth, you know? So sad. In May of 2006 is Amanda's first trimester. And so you're going to talk a lot about the pregnancy as well. But during the second trimester... She writes, I don't know how he can treat me this way. I'm having a baby. Oh, one of the reasons I want to include this, too, is just Amanda is really psychologically fucked up at this point because she's the one that's alone the longest and she's pregnant. So she's having all these like hormones racing through her and not getting medical the medical attention that she needs, you know, and she and her mom just died. So she's like in all kinds of fucking weird headspace. yeah. Yeah. So this is the reason I just have a little snippet from her memoir. She says, I don't know how he can treat me this way. I'm having a baby. What if there was something seriously wrong with me or the baby? Doesn't he care? I'm hurt and angry that he's still having sex with them, but I don't understand why I feel this way. 
He tells me that he's not, and he's always calling Gina his cousin and saying he wouldn't touch her, but it's obvious that he is. I hate it when he sneaks around and lies. I want to kill him, but I also want to be with him. God, what's wrong with me? Yeah, that's... Yeah. Some serious fuckery. So, uh, April 2005, America's Most Wanted features Barry in De Jesus's stories, highlighting that they were taken from almost exact same spot on Lorraine Avenue. One of the people interviewed is Arlene Castro, daughter of Ariel Castro. She's the friend who last saw De Jesus at a payphone in April 2004. Christmas Day 2006, Amanda Berry gives birth to a little girl she names Jocelyn. Her middle name, yeah. Jocelyn Jade Berry. Jade is for the Aerosmith song, Jaded. <laughs> she loves Aerosmith. Who doesn't? I don't. <laughs> okay. Neither, I mean, like, neither I do I. Okay. Love? No. They've got a couple. Good, they have like one good song. Is it Jaded? No. Yeah, it's not a very good song, is it? I don't know. It's like Jaded. What? Well, yeah, well, yeah. Jaded. <laughs> Sick. Um, I like know it, but I can't. I I can't do it. So, she gives birth to this girl, but it's not in a hospital or a clean place like most babies. Uh, she gives birth to Jocelyn in a kiddie pool in the bedroom that she's been abused in for years. Ariel forces Michelle to help. And, because she had a baby once. Yeah. And almost five other times. Yeah. Castro tells Michelle, if this baby dies, I'll kill you. And the whole time, Castro's just sitting in a rocking chair reading from a book about childbirthing. That is such a weird juxtaposition. Like, everything about this is so grotesque and gross. You know? It just fucking sucks. It reminds me of, like, some X-Files episode or yeah, something. Yeah, exactly. So, Jocelyn was surprisingly healthy, considering the circumstances when she's born. Amanda, you know, I guess she was just super quiet when she came out. And oh, yeah. It really tripped Amanda out. Because she thought... That the baby wasn't breathing. I don't know. Well, she thought the baby wasn't breathing because she didn't hear anything when the baby came out. And then eventually oh, she heard gotcha, the yeah. cry. And, um, it you know, it just takes a second sometimes. So Amanda turned her prison cell of a bedroom into a little classroom as Jocelyn got a little older. And she determined to give her little girl the best life possible and to prepare her for life outside the house if that day were to ever come. She taught Jocelyn how to read and write they would pretend that they were crossing streets, you know, looking both ways before, you know, for cars mm -hmm. or, you know, pretending like they're at a shopping center or stuff like that. Like stuff you would do in real life mm -hmm. if you weren't a prisoner. He also lets Amanda out of her chains way more so that she doesn't ask questions. Because at some point she asks, like, Mommy, why? Are, wh what are those? And that's when he was like... I'll fucking kill you if you escape, but I'm going to take these off of you because I don't want our daughter asking about your chains. And he also made Gina and Michelle come up with new names because he didn't want, because he was planning on taking Jocelyn outside sometimes because he like genuinely loved her. And so he didn't want his daughter talking about Michelle Knight and Gina de Jesus. Right. So they gave themselves, I know Gina's like fake name was Chelsea, 
did I don't know if you knew what Michelle's was, but they came up they came up with fake names for themselves. On one of these interviews or news reports that I've seen while I was researching this, the Centers for Families and Children said Amanda Berry is a model parent when it comes to early learning. Jocelyn, when spoiler alert, they escape. Yay. And she, Jocelyn's six years old when the first time she goes to school, like in first grade, I think. And she's already like a level higher in reading and writing and stuff than the other kids. Yeah. Something else that was very sweet that Gina and Michelle did for Jocelyn as well was that they pretended to be like different teachers of hers. So she would have like her math lesson with one teacher and oh, like right. her like reading lesson with another teacher. And they all just like played teacher and parent to her. So under like the shittiest circumstances ever, she was able to get this like super amazing, in a sense, upbringing by these three incredible women. You know what I mean? And they were around, they were able to be around her 24 hours a day, you know, yeah. and like protect her. And she had no idea. Like Jocelyn genuinely did not know that they were living in captivity, you know? So crazy. There are just other little segments of the memoirs that I liked, one of which is November 4th, 2008. Don't get sad because, oh, well, I know you don't care as much as I do, but whatever. Okay. I will get sad. But our listeners, you'll you'll feel a little tinge of sadness because I'm going to talk about our former president. Amanda writes, we have a new president, Barack Obama. I never thought a black man black man would be elected. I was going to say black man. Um, I never thought a black man would get elected. It's so exciting. It's history. I wish I could have voted. He sat with me to watch the election returns in the living room tonight, and we waited mm-hmm. for Obama to come out and give his acceptance speech in Chicago. I'm afraid to say out loud that I'm happy that Obama won. He has been grumbling about so many black people moving into his neighborhood. I voted for Obama, he says. Really? I asked, trying to not show my surprise. Yeah, I voted for him because the other guy is worse. I never knew. I never know what he's going to do. He forbids me and Gina and Michelle from watching TV with black actors, but then he goes and votes for a black president. I don't get him. <laughs> oh, yeah. Two other really gross facts. He constantly call uh, his nickname for his daughter, Jocelyn, is pretty. He just calls her pretty all the time. Hey, pretty. Hey, pretty. It's going to go to the store with me. Pretty's going to do this. Like he just calls her pretty. That's gross. That's totally gross. Also, he has a nickname for his dick. It's Charlie. Don't I? It came up really randomly in the memoir, like once. It's just fucking gross. Charlie. Yeah. Why Charlie? I don't know. He likes nicknames. He's a d- disgusting slob. Charlie. Yeah. I know. I hate it. In 2010, Gina begins cutting. She does it with like she does it with like different things and she figures out that the plastic knives from McDonald's are the best to be able to break the skin and she does this because one she's fucking sad and then two she she's really starting to resent Amanda and the little family that they have created right in front of her and Michelle Michelle tries to get her to stop but she's like fuck you this is the one thing I have control over like like I love you but it's the one thing I I don't want you to change about me I need this So she has this moment that's very strange and it's from it's strange and sweet and sad all at the same time. And so this is another segment that I wanted to include from the memoir from Gina's point of view. She says, oh, I guess this is actually from Amanda's point of view. 
I cut myself, Gina says, and it's because of you. What do you mean, Amanda asks. She shows me the marks on her arm. Some of them look fresh. As I feel myself starting to well up with tears, she tells me that I've been a real bitch to her and that I tell him lies about her that get her in trouble. This isn't true, but I know I haven't been nice to her. I don't want you to do that because of me, I say. I'm so sorry. I don't want to hurt you. We, all, we get enough hurt from him. It's like a slap in the face. I realize that there's no reason for us not to get along better. He did all of this to us. Having us not like one another is all part of his game. You have to stop doing that, I say, telling her that I read someplace that if you have a bad habit, you're supposed to find something else to do instead. I suggest that maybe she start wearing a rubber band around her wrist and that when she feels like cutting, she can snap herself hard with the rubber band instead. That way she can get a little bit of pain, but she's not really hurting herself. She says that sounds like a good idea. We talk a little more and she tells me about how hard it's been for her all these years. We're not different. It's not easier for her. She's not trying to make my life harder, no matter what he says. We're the same. She's going through exactly what I am. I suddenly see her as another me. I'm sorry I didn't see it sooner. I realize now that I can play an important role in this house. I'm a little older than Gina, so I think I can help her get through this. And maybe Michelle, too. Gina liked my rubber band idea, and I bet I can think of other things to make this easier for her. It feels good to help. I'm becoming sort of like the mama bear, and everybody needs help in here. That's kind of one of the points where they kind of all let down their guards to some extent. But Michelle Knight and Amanda never fully become close. They just, again, weirdly absent from each other's memoirs. All right. On June 18th, 2010, this thing, this is kind of a little bit of a side story. It's pretty crazy. Ariel tells Gina that Emily, his daughter, sliced her baby's neck and tried to kill herself. She's okay. It happened a while ago. But now Emily is going to prison for 25 years. Court records indicate Emily moved to Fort Wayne, Indiana with her boyfriend, D'Angelo Gonzalez, where she had a little baby girl. Emily Castro suffered from manic depression diagnosed when she was age 13, the court records say. On April 4th, 2007, a day after her boyfriend moved out, Castro, then 19, allegedly slashed the 11-month-old's throat four times cut her own neck and wrists, and then attempted to drown herself in a nearby creek. Her mother, Nilda, was in the house at the time, discovered what was happening, ran out to the street with the bleeding infant, and flagged down a driver who called 911. The infant survived. In June 2010, she was convicted of attempted murder and sentenced to 30 years in prison with five suspended. She appealed later that year, arguing that the court mistakenly ruled her competent to stand trial. Her appeal was denied. Quote, maybe this is God's way of punishing me for doing this to you guys, unquote, he says. Amanda writes, he thinks everything is about him. April 2012, Grimilda Nilda Figueroa, Ariel Castro's former partner, dies. She had accused him of domestic violence and abducting their daughters. Charges were dismissed on a technicality, which we talked about before. Do you know how she died? I, no heart failure maybe i know she had a lot of fucking issues like she had that brain surgery and he fucked her up pretty i mean he it fucked her up yeah. oh he fucked her up hardcore and i'm sure it could have been like you know later complications to you know stuff but i don't think it was one thing 
Around this time, Ariel takes Jocelyn. Oh, this. Okay, we're about to get trigger alert. There's some gnarly shit about to come up. All right. I mean, not that everything hasn't been gnarly already, but this is some of the gnarliest shit, I think. Around this time, Ariel takes Jocelyn to a fair. Jocelyn wants to buy hot dogs for everyone. He makes sure that Michelle has plenty of mustard on hers, to which she is deathly allergic to. When he gets home, he forces her to eat it or he will shoot her. He says, I'll shoot you if you do not eat this, because he knows she's allergic to mustard. That's fucked. It is suspected that she isn't pregnant. Uh, it is suspected that she is pregnant at this time, and he's trying to make her ill enough to miscarry, which it, the time frame here does get a little wonky. Either she miscarries twice or this is the same pregnancy. I'm not sure. She doesn't yet. After five days of puking and nearly dying from dehydration and everything, Gina encourages her to go on for her son. Michelle writes, Sometimes God shows up as a deep voice in a bright light. Other times he shows up as a friend named Gina. On a dark night in 2012, God showed up as both. In November of 2012, so this is some significant time later, and that's why it's hard to kind of connect. But in November of 2012, Michelle notices that Ariel is home way more often. She figures out he has lost his job, and he admits that to her. But to Amanda, he says that he quit his job, probably trying to save face with his quote-unquote girlfriend. He only really seems to care about what Amanda thinks of him. In Christmas of 2012, it was Jocelyn's birthday, and they had a party that Ariel didn't let Michelle join until the end. Like, again, just fucking with her, you yeah, know? Yeah, right, yeah. Because she loves Jocelyn, whether, you know, whatever with Amanda. But that's like her little, like, you know, like a uh, surrogate daughter. Yeah, because you know? she's never been allowed to. Yeah, she's never been allowed to keep a hers, baby. Yeah. yeah. So he lets Amanda join at the end. And he says, this really doesn't concern you. So that's why I didn't want you to be a part of the party. But he let Gina be a part of it. And yeah. so she goes like, whatever, you know. He, sa- he tells her to stay back after the party. He points towards the basement stairs and says, go ahead. Michelle takes a step forward and he follows behind. The hairs on her back stand up. When she gets to the third step, he pushes her from behind. She stumbles forward all the way down to the bottom of the stairs. When, he, when she lands, her stomach hits the edge of a bookcase. It's time to deal with this, he shouted. I'm going to fix you so you can never have another kid. Michelle writes, doubled over with my face to the ground. I could hear his boots on the bottom step. Then he kicked me right in the stomach. Stop it, I yelled at the top of my lungs. Please don't kill my baby again. But he wouldn't stop. He swung his heavy boot right into the midsection again and again. Before you leave this basement, he screamed, that baby had better be gone. He slammed the side of my head with his open hand. After four days, she's bleeding badly and pulls herself over to the toilet. And when she goes to the bathroom, she hears something plop in the water. The, this this might be a little too much for people, just so you know. And I, it's uh, it's incredible. Like, incredible meaning, like, it's it feels unbelievable. Yeah, it sounds fucking unbelievable. I know, and I fucking believe her, you know? Absolutely. I've, okay. She scoops whatever it is that plopped in the water out of the toilet and it's her dead baby fetus she shows him she like picks it up and is like look what you did you know and he just takes it from her and throws it in the garbage 
That's fucking so insane. Yeah. She thinks about how she wishes Gina would have just let her die after the near-death mustard incident. And I think she almost resents Gina at that point. May 5th, 2012, I, that whole thing is just fucking... fucking and, and at that point, that's the point, that's the point at which she is no longer able to get pregnant anymore, and I believe to this day she can't. May 5th, 2012, Ariel tells Gina that he saw her mother and gives her the flyer that he got from her that reads, Missing Person Georgina Gina de Jesus, with six little pictures of her at different stages of life. Gina starts crying. An hour ago, this paper was in her mother's hand. She writes, I cut out little paper hearts, covered them with red glitter, and glued them to the flyer. I carefully cut out one of those little photos of me. I'm going to put it in a pretty, pretty picture frame I made. I'm so, so hungry all the time. I must weigh under 100 pounds now, probably 30 less than when I got here. I take some grocery store ads from the newspaper, and I cut out pictures of food that I dream about. A strawberry ice cream sundae a thick ham and cheese sandwich, a pile of onion rings, and a Hershey's chocolate bar. I glue the pictures of food to the bottom of the flyer and tuck it away in the little blue backpack where I keep my most precious things. I love to hang the artwork up on my wall, but Jocelyn can read now, so she would ask too many questions about why it says I'm missing, and he would go crazy. Jocelyn doesn't even know my real name. To her, I'm Chelsea, but I know who I am. I'm Georgina de Jesus, and my family loves me. So, May 6, 2013. At this point, Amanda isn't chained up all the time, you know, because they're trying to make some sort of sense of normalcy in the house, and Amanda's trying to raise Jocelyn, so she's not chained up all the time like she used to be. So this day, Jocelyn tells Amanda that Ariel had gone somewhere and that the car was gone, and Ariel also, like, forgot to lock the door, the bedroom door, I guess. And those were locked from the outside, right? Mm-hmm. And Yeah, I think that they had, like, tons of locks all over them. So the bedroom door was unlocked. So Amanda rushed to the front door, thinking this was her chance to escape. She got to the front door, but it was locked in a way that she could only open it a few inches. I think there is... Yeah, one of those, like, chain things. Yeah, and it was, like, an aluminum door, so I think it was just, like, a, a screen storm kind of door. Thing. Kind of, yeah. yeah. So she, they could only open it a few inches, so she stuck her head out as far as she could and starts screaming for help. So the rest of the story goes in two different ways, kind of, so I'll just go through both of them. Charles Ramsey, the next-door neighbor, uh, was enjoying some warm McDonald's when he heard a scream. As opposed to the stale, cold McDonald's that they're used to. Yeah, and it's crazy how much Yeah, McDonald's, McDonald's is like comes... the official sponsor of Ariel Castro. It's like, Jesus Christ, fucking Cleveland. So he's eating McDonald's, and he hears a scream, and he, quote, uh, says, that sound stopped children playing. He looked out the window, and he saw his neighbor, Angel Cordero, running across the street to his next-door neighbor's house, Ariel Castro. Ramsey then ran outside to see what was going on. So Ramsey sees Amanda desperately trying to escape from the house, and she's screaming, help me, help me get out. At first, Ramsey thought someone broke into the house and couldn't get out until he saw Amanda's face. Ramsey was shocked to see a white girl Mm -mm. and asked, what's your problem? As this is happening, Cordero runs behind Ramsey. Ramsey turns to see Cordero running back across the street saying, she needs to get out of here. I'm not getting involved with that. 
Ramsey said he did what he needed to be done and kicked down or kicked the bottom part of the door open enough that Amanda and Jocelyn could squeeze through. Once they were free, Ramsey said to Amanda, now listen, go across the street and you see that fuck that didn't help you? Go get his <laughs> cell phone. You call 911 from his phone. That way, while I'm trying to get through and you trying to get through, we both are bound to make this happen. So Amanda ran across the street and made the call, the now iconic 911 call. So the other version of the rescue goes like this. Well, why are there why are there conflicting accounts? Do you know why? Or um, what the well, reason could be? I think this is how the whole thing started here. Do people want recognition? I think a little bit because that Ramsey and I'm not guy. Try- I mean, the Ramsey guy is fucking hilarious. And He's super awesome, charismatic yeah. and personable. So he kind of turned he- into a celebrity over the thing. I think, yeah, a bit. and there I did read at least one thing that was like, dude was kind of amplifying it up to make himself look better because he wanted to be the hero. But fuck it. He's a hero. Yeah, for sure. I mean, okay, well, I, ha- I actually haven't heard this other account, so. So this other one goes like this. Um, neighbor Aurora Marty and her friend Anna, they lived across the street from Ariel Castro, and they were the first to see Amanda screaming for help. They crossed the street and called out to Ramsey, but I think they're all, um, yeah, they're Spanish. Spanish speakers. Yeah, yeah they're, uh, it's a Puerto Rican neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So their English wasn't so good. But then they saw Angel or Angel. Uh, or Angel. Cordero, yeah. And he's a Spanish speaker. So Marty said it was Cordero who kicked open the door, setting Amanda and Jocelyn free. And that Ramsey was there at the time, also helping. He called 911. So either way, Ramsey was there. Yeah. But in one of the accounts, Ramsey's trying to take away some from Cordero to make himself seem like he was more helpful, potentially. But regardless, in both accounts, yeah. Ramsey's a hero. Yeah, both of them are. Yeah. Um, well, it sounds like Cordero was a coward in one of the accounts, though. It does sound like that. Although they were still able to use his cell phone. Yeah, yeah. No, he still played an integral part, but... He didn't want to get involved, and because he thought maybe it was like a um, domestic dispute kind of thing. Like I don't want to get involved. Yeah. Yeah, and I could feel that, you know. So police. We've all seen shit that we didn't want to be involved with in our lives. It's a hard one. Like it's when, a fucking hard one. When do you get involved? Remember that one time when we were we were walking to the Moda Center to go see Judas Priest, uh-huh. and there was this couple, and they were fighting on the street, and it was getting physical, and there I was ready to call nine one one. And then they kind of stopped because I think they saw like, you know, people reaching for their phones and stuff. I don't know exactly. But there was that part of me is like, I really don't want to miss Judas Priest. <laughs> I know. And I felt like a bad person. Yeah. But at the same time, it seemed fairly mutual. Like it wasn't like he was beating up on her. Right. She was but beating then you up like him. read these but, stories when like someone gets involved and then they get, you know, the boyfriend just like. Yeah. Turns around and shoots them in the face. You know, I just use the term. I just use ice. Yeah. I actually like that. Yeah, I'm going to try that a little more often. So police arrive. They break open the front door and retrieve Michelle Knight and Gina de Jesus. Ariel and his brother O'Neill were approached by police at, guess where? McDonald's, the official sponsor of Ariel Castro. Yeah. 
I guess we should probably put in there that these views are only held, they're not yeah. held by the true crime dumpster <laughs> family or whatever. Um, so after... Now fuck it, fuck McDonald's. Yeah. We don't want you as a sponsor anyways. I don't like your Big Mac. Fucking A. <laughs> there you go. I haven't had McDonald's in like 20 years. Fuck them. That is the official... Message or... Yeah. Of true crime dumpster, fuck McDonald's. That's our public safety announcement. Yeah, don't eat McDonald's, you'll become a child molester. <laughs> and weird endorsement. Okay. All right, so after being handcuffed, O'Neill asked if this was about their brother Pedro and told police where they could find him. So police go and arrest Pedro as well. A couple days after the arrest, police announced that Pedro and O'Neill had no involvement in the disappearance of these girls. They did, however, remain in police custody due to an unrelated misdemeanor warrant. The Castros went to court the next day. Pedro and O'Neill were released but Ariel's bail was set at $8 million. Yup, motherfucker. May 8th, 2013, Victor Perez, chief assistant prosecutor for the city of Cleveland, announces that Ariel Castro's brother, O'Neill and Pedro, originally thought to be involved, would not be charged. They didn't know. Yeah, no. They... No, they're, they're, yeah, no one did. Like, this was fucking just Ariel Castro. Yeah, I can't remember the name of the show I watched about, but they interviewed the brothers, and they, yeah. they, they're, like, especially totally O'Neill was yeah, like. it fucking broke them. He, yeah, they're fucked, yeah. Um, if they had known, they would have turned in their brother, no questions asked. Yep. So, July 12th, 2013, a grand jury issues Fresh indictments, and I think this was the final number for uh, uh, charges. Um, because they were able to use Amanda Berry's journals, uh, and that's how they were kind of able to compute some of, like, the actual, like, provable rapes and stuff. So that's where they got a lot of these numbers from. Yeah, they kept, like, um, indicting and with these charges, but it kept going up and up, like, the counts of these different charges. But mm -hmm. so the, the final totals were, it was 977 counts. 512 counts of kidnapping, 446 counts of rape, 7 counts of gross sexual imposition, which I'm not quite sure what that is. Yeah, I'm used to hearing misconduct. Um, 6 counts of felonious assault, 3 counts of child endangerment, 2 counts of aggravated murder, in which Castro is accused of intentionally causing the termination of a pregnancy. And 1 count of possessing criminal tools. And then I also think that one of the reasons that the counts were all over the place is that the three women were working th with three different attorneys and all of them wanted certain, ab absolutely they wanted justice for themselves and for each other. And so they were constantly like recounting and trying to get together a lot of their accounts and they would like remember something or want to add something or be like, no, 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 I, I absolutely, I'll take these rapes off the table if these, you know, oh, acute, right, yeah. you know what I mean? So I think that there was a lot of like wheeling and dealing among the three different attorneys and the three different women because they really, really wanted this guy to fucking go down for hurting them, you know? July 26, 2013, Castro agrees to a plea deal, which recommends that he be sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of no parole. Shit. Under the deal, he agrees to plead guilty to 937 accounts. Also, part of the deal was the house would be demolished. Yeah. And that happened. I can't remember when. August 7th, 2013. 
right there. It says it right there. <laughs> but on August 1st, 2013, he's sentenced to life in prison plus 1,000 years, which I just love. That's some fucking hard time. Yeah. That means his soul or wherever it is that the body... Ha- I mean, because he's Catholic and religious, so he believes in that shit. So he probably was a reptilian. Because- That's why he has no feelings. <laughs> But I mean, like, I love that 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 poetic justice, too, is that like he believes in some kind of afterlife, I believe. So even his soul is sentenced for a thousand additional years. You know, that makes me feel good. I think where his soul is now, it's um, it's not free regardless. A thousand years is the least of his worries. Yeah. Michelle Knight was present at this demolition and handed out yellow balloons to spectators, which she said, represented missing children. The balloons were released before De Jesus's aunt I love this part. Began. De Jesus's aunt was in the motherfucking She's demolition the crane, yeah. crane. She did the first whack. I know. The fucking De Jesus family is like, this shit's going down. Yeah. You know what I mean? They were so... Because that was their fucking friend on top of it. Totally, yeah. That was their fucking friend. And so they're like, fuck you, mister, you know? It's too bad that the family just couldn't get, like... Some baseball bats and just beat the shit out of Ariel. Chain him to like a basketball hoop or something. Yeah. Like a pinata. (laughs) You kind of described a pinata. (laughs) Racist. I'm joking. On September 3rd, 2013, just over a month after being sentenced, Ariel Castro was found hanged with a bed sheet in his cell at the Correctional Reception Center in Orient, Ohio. Speaking of racist, Orient. There's no, there's no Asians there. <laughs> Prison medical staff attempted to revive him to no avail. Uh, they didn't try that hard. <laughs> they were like, we're going to wait like 10 minutes and have some McDonald's. And then yeah. we're going to see if we can revive this piece of shit. You know that they hesitated to save him. I would. There's some yeah. beliefs that it wasn't suicide, maybe. Yeah. You're going to tell him. Anyways, two correctional officers, Caleb Ackley and Ryan Murphy, were on duty the night Castro hung himself. They were both placed on leave after this happened because Castro was not on suicide watch, but he was in protective custody because of his high profile case and also because other inmates wanted a piece of Castro. Oh, I would love to let them have a piece of him. Street justice for the girls. Yeah. Some people think that it was autoerotic asphyxiation. Yeah, because I think his pants were down. His dick was out. Charlie was out. Charlie. <laughs> I, I know. I don't even want It's disgusting. According to ABCnews.com, Castro was found at 9.15 oh, p.m. with his pants and underwear around his ankles, leading investigators and the rumor mill to conclude he died getting freaky. Uh, he did claim to be addicted to sex, but apparently he had also laid out photographs of his family on the floor and also had a Bible open to the book of John. Not my choice of spank bank material. Yeah, well, nothing is pictures of his spank family. Bank, like, but, but also abducted girls living in your house that you rape every day is not spank bank material to, for most people. No, definitely not. I hope. I don't know. With with. The pictures and the Bible thing, I, I believe that he hung himself and it wasn't like... It wasn't all sexual. It wasn't a jerk sesh gone wrong. He didn't in excess himself. I knew you were going to say that. Had to. 
Uh, he was supposed to be checked every 30 minutes, but jail guards responsible for watching Castro skipped their rounds and falsified reports about the times they checked on him. Someone on Reddit claims, which this is probably totally legit. Sarcasm. That, yeah, sarcasm alert. Their cousin was in the facility. In Whose cousin? This Reddit writer. Oh, oh, I see. Okay. Their cousin was in this facility at some point and says there's no way you could hang yourself without being seen or noticed by the guards. So what? some guy said something about that. So that's. But you could whack it and that was fine. The, the guards would see that and think that's cool. I yeah, don't I don't know. I, okay, I, so right. I, what I, I read somewhere that he did leave a suicide note saying he was abused as a kid by family members. Mm-hmm. And always he's always portraying himself as a victim at the back of um, Hope, the Amanda Berry and Gina de Jesus memoir. They actually have that letter. Oh, like wow. it, yeah. In its entirety. They blacked out a few names of, like, family members and stuff. But, yeah, he did talk about how he was abused as a five-, six-year-old kid. Yeah. So Castro also filed written complaints that he was being verbally abused by inmates. No shit! I would verbally abuse him. Yeah. Sorry. Verbally abused? Like, oh. Hey, you rapist piece of shit. Like. Racist rapist. Sorry, that's just a fact. Yeah. Fucking. Mm -hmm. Rip Charlie right off. (laughs) Charlie Brown. He is also worried that. (laughs) <laughs> Don't go there. That's disgusting. <laughs> he was also worried that people were poisoning his I food would. and often refused to eat, flushing his meals down the toilet. Good. Coroner Jan I have Gorniak. No, I have no sympathy for this guy whatsoever. He deserves every horrible thing that happened to him. He got off easy. Yeah. And no pun intended. You. Yeah. Sorry. My next band is going to be called Gorniak, yeah. I think. <laughs> so... Jan Gorniak. No, just Gorniak. How about Coroner Gorniak? Coroner Gor... Never mind, I can't say that. Corniak. Corniak. Oh, yeah, we're so... Coroner Jane Gorniak found no evidence. Say that three times fast. No. Coroner Jan Gorniak found no evidence of him choking for sexual pleasure. And... I would hate to do that autopsy. ...concludes he died by self-inflicted hanging. And parts of this kind of remind me of the Epstein. Everything reminds you of the Epstein case. Prison guards in in the Epstein case were also falsifying. Shopping on the internet. They falsified reports about checking on him too. But yeah. I think literally all prison guards everywhere do that. These are just the ones that got caught. I need to get a job as a prison guard. Yeah. So you can get some internet shopping and sleep. So I can finally get some sleep. And verbally abuse molesters. If there's two things I love is sleeping and talking shit to molesters. So if you're hiring anyone that's listening at a prison. (laughs) (laughs) Then Kevin wants to take a nap there. I'm so tired. (laughs) God. In May of 2014, Knight comes out with her memoir, Finding Me, A Decade of Darkness, A Life Reclaimed. And it's published. Um, Knight also reveals uh, that same month of May of 2014 that she is changing her name to Lillianne Rose Lee. So I know we referred to as Michelle Knight throughout the entire thing because that's what most people know her as. But she does go by Lily Rose Lee now. And she did go on to culinary school and wants to open her own restaurant. April 2015. April 2015, so about a year later, Barry and De Jesus's book, Hope, A Memoir of Survival in Cleveland, is released. 
On May 2nd, 2015, the Lifetime original movie Cleveland Abduction premieres on television. I would love to see that. I've never seen it. Yeah, we should check that out. And then February 6th, 2017, Fox 8 News in Cleveland announces that Barry is the new host of the station's Missing Person segment. I watched some of those on YouTube. Oh, are they good? Yeah, yeah. She is just the sweetest. Like, they're all such good people. Like, despite everything, you know. On May 1st, 2018, Knight's second book, Life After Darkness, Finding Healing and Happiness After the Cleveland Kidnappings, is published. I have not read that one yet. Just came out like less than two years ago. And then there, there's a one rabbit hole we decided not to go down. But do you want to talk about it for a second? Do you know anything about it? I actually don't know too much about it. But um, we could do a, a, an addendum to an episode. Uh, well, so I mean, basically, I don't want to give it too much airtime because there's no credibility to it. But the three women did say that there was potentially a fourth victim in the house because they all heard voices. At a certain time, pretty soon after Gina's abduction, and he did talk about wanting to abduct like one more girl, which Jesus Christ, do you need any more? You already have three. You're just greedy now. And so they they all swore up and down that there was potentially a fourth girl. But as he did with one another, he would lie up to them and say that they were someone else or that they were hearing things or whatever. And they, a lot of people, not a ton of people, but a lot believe that there was this girl named Ashley Summers who was abducted somewhat soon after Gina de Jesus. She was like 16 years old and she is currently a missing person, but she was abducted very, very close to where the other victims were. And there are some weird reports about her popping up in like certain jurisdictions and stuff. And there's some weirdness around it that, that maybe she potentially was the fourth victim and then got free and then fucking Took, made a run for it, decided to get away from life in Cleveland altogether. So that's just kind of an interesting rabbit hole that there are some kind of short YouTube videos and like little articles on it here and there, but there isn't a ton of credibility to it. What is interesting, though, is that there is a picture of a girl who looks very much like her, like six years age progressed. And it's what people believe, but it hasn't been corroborated to be her last known picture. And she's on some kind of like wanted list like in Connecticut or something. It's it's kind of it's again kind of a crazy rabbit hole I didn't go down too far into. Ariel Castro is survived by his children who bear the burden of having Ariel Castro as their father. Their names are and I took some time. <laughs> well, no no no, it's just because I kind of fucked it up at the beginning cuz I thought there was only two daughters but there's actually three. Angie Castro Greg, Anthony Castro, Emily Castro, and Arlene Rosie Castro, um, as well as Jocelyn Jade Berry. So those are his kids that um, live on after him. Um, he's also survived by his brothers, whose souls he murdered. Lastly, he is survived by the brave women who endured the decade-long imprisonment at 2207 Seymour Avenue, Michelle Knight, Amanda Berry, and Gina de Jesus. This is dedicated to them. So, Kevin. Where can our dumpster friends find us at? <laughs> Join our Facebook group, True Crime Dumpster, where we post weekly and discuss the crimes and other related things. You're not reading a script at all, huh? <laughs> no, I've got this tattooed on my hairy palms. <laughs> Follow us on Twitter at TC Dumpster and on Instagram at True Crime Dumpster. You can email us at truecrimedumpster at gmail.com. And we're currently making our website better. 
as we speak. <laughs> TrueCrimeDumpster.com. Listen to our show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, and Spotify. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends about our podcast. We appreciate the support. We're also on Patreon now, and our first patron episode will be up in the next few weeks. There are three tiers that are aptly named. You'll have to go to our Patreon to see what that looks like. Um, I believe our Patreon is patreon.com slash truecrimedumpster. Nobody else had that name, it's, weirdly enough. Yeah, it's still open. I know, it's still open. <laughs> For our first episode, we'll be watching a true crime lifetime slash oxygen network movie with my dad. Oh my God. <laughs> That's the true crime my itself dad... is watching this. <laughs> That's a crime. Fuck. And we'll be talking about that afterwards. Um, Carl won't be on the entire episode, but we'll want to hear his uh, hot takes. <laughs> yeah, he's really going to throw Trump in the dump. <laughs> Trumpster. It should be a good time. We have a few shorter shows lined up over the next week to cleanse our palates of the dirty Castro that left a film on them. And we'll be honoring uh, James Wormley Jones, an African-American policeman and World War I veteran who's best known for having been the first African-American FBI special agent and also the FBI's first female African-American agent, Sylvia Elizabeth Mathis, along with a few others in honor of Black History Month. We'll also, oh, and this is for you. <laughs> well, thank you. We will also be revisiting some garbage people that you wish you forgot about, but you're not so lucky because we're going to remind you. So thanks for listening to True Crime Dumpster, where we talk out the trash. All right. Bye. Adios. <laughs>